If you have your Bibles with you today, and I hope that you do, would you take them and turn to the book of 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. So if you go right to the very end with the book of Revelation and work your way back, three books through Jude, Second John, 3 John, 2 John, and 1 John chapter 1. Our text today is 1 John chapter 1. It's verses 1 through 10. The whole chapter we'll read in just a moment. Last week we began a new sermon series for a couple months this spring focused on the big idea of communion with Christ. And we looked last week at John chapter 15 where Jesus tells us, he says, I am the true vine, you are the branches. And we have this image given to us and this command relayed to us for us to abide in Christ with the the statement, which is a promise, that as a branch we can only bear fruit if we remain in the vine. And so we began to introduce the idea of abiding in Christ, which is the same as having communion with Christ, or having fellowship with Christ, or even friendship with Christ. As Jesus tells us in John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants, but I have called you friends. This is the really glorious possibility that's open to those who believe in Jesus, that he, the second person of the Trinity, God himself looks at us and calls us his friends and he welcomes us and invites us into fellowship with him that we might know him, that we might interact with him, that we might speak to him as a man speaks with his friends. And so we continue this uh, series today, Communion with Christ, trying to explore some of the more practical aspects from 1 John chapter 1. So if you're able, will you please join me in standing for the reading of God's word? This is 1 John 1, one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray one more time. Father, we give you thanks for your word, and we ask that by your spirit you will help us as we submit to your word, as we bow our knees before you and listen to what you say to us through your word. We ask that you will speak to our hearts, that you will encourage us, that in pointing us to Christ we may find life, And Lord, may we know the joy of which John speaks in this letter. May you teach us the joy of fellowship with you and with your Son, Jesus Christ. 
that our joy might be complete. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts that we might see wonderful, wonderful things in this portion of your word. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Please be seated. So about a a year ago or so, one evening, I went to the neighborhood pool that's near our house, and I wanted to swim a couple laps to get a little exercise that night. And I was there, and I, I started talking with a young man who was there who was maybe 20 or 21 years old. He was just walking back and forth in the pool to do some rehab on a knee injury that he had. And so we began talking a little bit, and it was very clear that he wanted to tell me all about how he got that injury through being in a somewhat devastating car accident. And so he was telling me about it, and he told me about how uh, the car was crushed and he was unconscious when the, the EMTs arrived. And then he looked at me very poignantly and said, and then I went up. And with fear and trembling, I asked him what he meant. (laughs) Because I was afraid that I already knew. And indeed, he told me that in his experience, he had gotten into this car accident, been knocked unconscious, and he told me that he went to heaven. And he described for me what happened there, about how he met God and was talking with God, and, and he told God that he didn't deserve to be there. He himself, not God. He said, I don't really deserve to be here. And in his experience, God had to talk him into it. He convinced him and he showed him this video of his life and pointed out all the good things he had done and said, no, 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 you're better than you think. Of course you deserve to be here. And so I wanted to respond pastorally and and gently to this young man and I asked him if he had ever shared this with his pastor or if he had any idea what the Bible said about how you get to heaven and what happens if you were to go there. And of course he said, no, he hadn't done neither of those things. And as we enter into this sermon series now on communion with God, I have that experience in my mind. Because I know that some of us will hear this phrase, communion with God, and we might have all sorts of different mental pictures come into our mind of what that means. What does that look like to experience communion with God? Is that something that only happens in ecstatic visions when you are transported into otherworldly realms? Does that mean I go to heaven and actually talk with God. And, and so I know there is a lot of confusion about that, and, and we hear communion with Christ, and it sounds kind of mystical or ethereal. It's hard to exactly put our fingers on what that means. And so as I think of that, and as, as I think of what the Bible teaches us about having communion with Christ, I have two sort of grand goals for this sermon series. The first goal for the whole series is to help us to see from the scriptures the beauty and the glory of communion with Christ, to see it for what it is, and and to realize that this is truly what we were made for. Very literally, it's what we were made for. If we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we see Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And they spoke with God as a man talks with his friends, and they enjoyed fellowship together. They enjoyed the friendship of being together there in the Garden of Eden without the obstruction of sin. But we remember then that sin entered the world and that fellowship was broken and it was lost. That Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden and they no longer had this unfettered access to being in the presence of God. And if we look through then the whole history of redemption, we see on the one hand, man is always making these attempts to get back into communion with God. Think of the Tower of Babel, all of man's attempts to get back to God, and they all are always misdirected. 
When man takes the initiative to reinstate the communion with God, it's always misdirected and things never go well. But nevertheless, we see throughout the Bible that God takes the initiative to reinstate communion with God. We read all throughout the Old Testament through his covenants, God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. That God himself is coming to his people and offering them a path back into fellowship with himself. And we could trace it all the way through the Bible, all the way to the very end of the book of Revelation when that statement is repeated that in the new heavens and the new earth that we will be with God, he will be our God and we will be his people and there will be perfect communion will be reestablished between us and him. And so we can describe the whole Bible under this rubric of fellowship with God and communion with Christ and see the, the beauty and this is the ultimate goal of all of creation. It's the goal of redemption that, that God is glorified in restoring us to fellowship with himself. I was struck as I was studying for this that, that J.I. Packer does a great study of the Puritan's view of communion with God. And when he gets to the end of his study, he draws a few conclusions. And the first one is this. He says, First, we cannot but conclude that whereas to the Puritans, communion with God was a great thing, to evangelicals today it is a comparatively small thing. And I don't ever want that to be true of us or our church, that anyone could say that to us, communion with Christ was seen as a, a relatively small thing, that it was not much to be desired, not much to be sought after. But I want us to see from the scriptures that this is held up really as the goal of redemption, that this is the great glory that awaits us is fellowship with Christ. That's the first goal of this series. The second one is to also try to see from the Bible that this is practical, that, that there's objective reality in this, and to try to take what might seem like this grandiose idea and to sort of you know, bring it down to the lower shelves so we can wrap our minds around what actually does it mean in practice to experience communion with Christ. How do we begin to look at something that feels ethereal and, and hard to grasp and begin to make that a little bit more concrete? The grand ethos of our world today is that experience is king. That if you have an experience, be it a physical experience or a spiritual or an emotional experience, the great ethos of our world is that that is beyond critique. That experience is, has sort of this unassailable character to it that, that someone else cannot speak into your experience and say that it's not valid. After all, it's your experience. It, it's what you experience. And I experienced some of that myself in talking to this young man, that, that how do you critique someone else's experience? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes 1 John and says, John is all about testing experience. John is all about testing your experience and, and giving you certain tests by which you can know if you have had fellowship with God or not. How do you know if you've had communion with Christ? What does that mean? What does that look like? And... So that's the second goal, is to try to take this thing that might seem hard to grasp and to begin to make it practical and to put some hands and feet on it. And to do that, 1 John is a great help for us. I want us to see what 1 John teaches about fellowship with Christ. First, he shows us the ground of our fellowship in verses 1 through 4, and then he gives us the path of fellowship in verses 5 through 10. First, he gives us the ground of our fellowship. Look at verse 3 for just a moment. Verse 3, starting in about the middle of that verse where he says, So you may have the fellowship with us, 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That word indeed, some of the translations say truly. It's almost pausing to give proper effect to what he's about to say, to make us hear what he's about to say. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's a whole world of truth in that little phrase that we need to appreciate and to unpack and to ponder this word that, that John in this letter, he is wasting no time at all in getting straight into the, the deep end. That this is just where he begins, that what the reality is that's driving this letter is that believers in Christ have fellowship with the Father and we have fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is a large part of his goal in writing this letter to the churches. He is writing as an apostle to the churches with this goal in mind, not merely that the church is going to learn to sort of modify its behavior a little bit, that they're going to learn to live better, that they're going to even hold a new set of beliefs or to modify their theology. His goal is nothing less than this grand goal that they will know what it is to have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Is that our idea of what the Christian life is? Is that where our mind goes when we think the Christian life, what it means to live it, to enjoy it, to experience it? Does our mind go first to communion with the Father and with Christ? Sadly, I don't think we, we usually do. I know my mind is going to go more towards a set of doctrines. It's things we believe, things we confess. And that's very important. Perhaps your mind goes to a certain lifestyle, ways that we live. And John will say that's very important, that we obey the commandments, that we walk in love. But all of that is pointing to the greater reality that we have fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ. John says in John 17, what Jesus says, he reports what Jesus prays, that his disciples might have eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So even if we thought the great goal of Christianity is eternal life, Jesus and John would say, yes, that is the goal, and this is what it means. It means fellowship with God, knowing him, knowing Jesus Christ. And so again, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, we'll hear from him several times today. When he wrote on 1 John 1, 3, on this phrase, that this is the goal of fellowship with God, he, he says, I'm ready to admit that I approach a statement like this with fear and trembling. It's one of those statements concerning which a man feels that the injunction given to Moses of old at the burning bush is highly appropriate. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereupon thou art standing is holy ground. He approaches this verse that says, Truly our fellowship is with God, and, and to unpack what is involved in that statement. He says that he feels like he's at the burning bush, that God himself is standing before him, inviting him into fellowship. And, and the first response perhaps is, not quite to know what to do. And this is ground too holy for us, this idea that redeemed men can have fellowship with a holy God. That's the big idea in 1 John, is that we can be brought into fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ. He'll say it again at the end, the end of the book. He tells us again, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. We remember eternal life, it's not just length of life. It's that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
So this is what it's for. He says, we proclaim him to you. After this description, these first couple verses, it's a little complex when you read it because he has so many subordinate clauses here, but he's describing Jesus that was from the beginning, who we've heard, who we've seen, who we've looked upon, who we've touched with our hands, all of this. And he says down in verse 3, we proclaim him to you. We proclaim Jesus to you. Why? So that you might have fellowship with us. And this is the fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, here's the point of these first three verses. Here's the main point. I, I believe that John, in these verses, is very concerned to show us something. He's very concerned to show us that this fellowship that he talks about in verse 3 is deeply grounded in the historical person and work of Jesus. The fellowship that he's talking about is deeply grounded in the self-revelation of God to us through Christ. That's why he's going to take this lengthy sentence that he writes here in these first couple verses, this is why it's so important, because he's making the case that he saw Jesus. He was with Jesus. He can attest that Jesus lived, that he existed, that he was a real, actual person, that he was an eyewitness to Jesus, to his life and his death and his resurrection. And he says that matters. He goes through all of those things. Because fellowship with Christ does not exist apart from Jesus. He's going to give us a very concrete path to this fellowship is that it goes through Jesus. The historical person of Jesus matters. There is no communion with God apart from Jesus. And so here's the first way to sort of concretize the idea of communion with Christ. Is it must begin with Jesus, the historical person of Jesus. Not just having spiritual thoughts or having a certain experience or a heavenly vision, but it begins always with Jesus. That's what John is saying here in these first three verses. When Lloyd-Jones was writing on this, he made a very important distinction that I found to be very helpful and I want to try to share and explain to you. He said there's really two types of communion with God, or, or maybe to say it better, there's two ways that people think about having communion with God. If we were to just vastly oversimplify all the different theories of communion with God, we could put them in two categories. He says the first category is the mystical conception of communion with God. And the second category is the evangelical conception of communion with God. So I found this to be helpful in, in clarifying what does it mean to have communion with God, this uh, seemingly vague idea. And he says there's two ways to think about it. The first one is the mystical way of thinking about communion with God. The mystical view of communion with God sees our feelings as of utmost importance and the primary source of knowledge of God. It's not primarily about our intellect or our reasoning or, or our understanding, but it's primarily about our feelings and our emotions. That is how we connect with God in the mystical view, which is to say for, for mystics, there's no external objective source of communion. Rather, it is immediate, and I mean that very technically, no mediator, immediate, there's no mediation. There's nothing between my heart and God. They just communicate directly. He gives feelings, he gives thoughts into my heart immediately. And, and we can think of the mystics of church history and that we read about these people who really abandoned all of human society. They'd go out into the wilderness or out into the desert and adopt very ascetic lifestyles. And their whole goal was to be in direct communion with God. And to do that, they had to get as, as many distractions out of the way as possible. And so they go out into the wilderness. 
I go out of cell phone range because that hinders communion with God because it's all about the direct experience that they would have. They need to be alone. And, and so many people will think of this, just this spiritual experience which you can't even quite put into words. It's just this sort of heightened sense of emotion and heightened sense of feeling where you just know that you're in the presence of God. And this view, this mystical conception of communion with God is very common today. There was a book uh, several years ago that was very popular when it came out. It was called Jesus Calling, and it was a book of devotional readings that were meant to encourage believers in their walk with Christ, and it was a a major bestseller. Maybe it, it still is even today. And it was written by this lady named Sarah Young who shares what God spoke to her during her times of communion with God. And this is how she explains it. This is her explanation from the beginning of the book. She says, One night, I found myself leaving the warmth of our cozy chalet to walk alone in the snowy mountains. I went into a deeply wooded area feeling vulnerable and awed by cold, moonlit beauty. The air was crisp and dry, piercing to inhale. Suddenly, I felt as if a warm mist enveloped me. I became aware of a lovely presence. And my involuntary response was to whisper, Sweet Jesus. This utterance was totally uncharacteristic of me, and I was shocked to hear myself speaking so tenderly to Jesus. This was far more than the intellectual answers for which I'd been searching. This was a relationship with the creator of the universe. That's almost the textbook definition of what it means to have this mystical conception that, that you're just all alone in the snowy mountains and a warm mist envelops you and you have this involuntary response you see there's no understanding in this at all it's purely emotional based on what she is feeling at the time and what she then did was was she felt that god had given her a message directly to her that she would write down and she then said that was my whole goal was to make this happen again to receive new messages from god and she wrote them into a book of devotional readings for us that are messages god gave directly to her, and this is the mystical idea of communion, that she had immediate unfettered access to God based on her feelings and her emotions. And it's really, it's not just her, but this idea is very broad in the Christian world today. We see it really all over the place. There's a whole culture of people today who would say that they love Jesus, but not the church. They love spirituality, but not organized religion, because that gets in the way. That's a hindrance with all of its theology and its doctrines dogma. What they want is the spiritual experience of being in the presence of Christ. And so they feel more close to God when they're hiking or when they're surfing or when they're golfing or when they're hanging out with their buddies at Starbucks or at the bar. They feel like that's how they really have communion with God and where he speaks to them. They want to embrace this idea of communion with God, but do you see what they're doing? They want to be the ones who set the terms for that communion. They want to be the ones who dictate how it happens. And so they do whatever helps them to feel as though they have been in God's presence. Now, uh, Lloyd-Jones offers several thoughts on this mystical idea of communion with Christ, and, and he says the first problem with it is that it obviously makes the Bible unnecessary. Indeed, what Sarah Young in her book, she says very explicitly, I know God talks to me through the Bible, but my heart yearned for more. She knew God had spoken to her in the Bible, but she says, I wanted something else. I yearned for more than that. So the Bible is unnecessary. And furthermore, Lloyd-Jones says it makes Jesus unnecessary. Because within this mystical idea of communion with Christ, 
There's never any idea of sin. There's never any talk that we might actually need a mediator if we are to go have fellowship or communion with God. Rather, it's just the spiritual sort of being in the presence of the divine, and he speaks to my spirit. Now, the other way, and I, I hope this is helpful for us to see the other way, is the evangelical idea of communion with Christ. That all of this mystical idea is really not found in the Bible, but we want to pursue the evangelical way of fellowship with God. And on the evangelical way, first of all, it's grounded in Christ. It's grounded in the person and the work of Jesus at a particular place and time in history. We would say there is simply no communion with God in any other way than through the work of Jesus. Right? Jesus himself says that. I, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me. First Timothy 2, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near. And this is what he says here in 1 John chapter 1, where he begins with this elaborate presentation of Jesus, who he was with. He was an eyewitness to him. He says, I proclaim him in order that you might have fellowship. Because if I don't proclaim him, there will be no fellowship. If we don't start with Jesus, if Jesus did not exist, there is no fellowship with God. This is where the mystical path fails so badly. And you see, the evangelical path of communion with Christ and fellowship with God is grounded in what we typically call the ordinary means of grace. And that word is ordinary is really important because we're not talking about some supernatural, otherworldly, divine experience. It's just ordinary. It's the ordinary means that God has given us. And we think of the Bible, prayer, and the sacraments. These are the ordinary means that God has provided for us, his people, to enjoy communion with him, to know that we are in his presence. Right? As Jesus says, if, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, that, that's part of what it is to have communion with Christ, is that his word is abiding in us. He has spoken to us. We can listen to him. We can hear what he says to us. All we have to do is read the Bible. If you want to hear him speak to you audibly, read it out loud. And you have the audible voice, God himself speaking to you in a trustworthy way. There are means that God has prescribed for us, we can, we can know him accurately. We can be in his presence. We can experience the joyful, transformative power of friendship with him. And, and we see that these are means of grace that are not subjective. They're not going to be different for every person based on what you feel in your experience that God has said to you. These are objective means that we can go and be in the presence of God. And here's one thing this means for us. That if you are in a place right now where you are feeling sort of spiritually cold. If you're feeling kind of distant from God, because we all go through these seasons in life. We'll have a season where you just feel like, you know, spiritually everything is clicking. All eight cylinders are going, and you feel like, I have good joy in Christ, and you're eager to spend time in his presence, and you're eager to, to spend time in prayer. But we all know the opposite season exists. We know we all go through seasons where we feel cold and distant from God, where prayer feels like a burden to us, and the word seems unattractive to us and we just feel cold now what do you do in that what do you do if you're in a season like that well here's the thing we don't don't neglect the ordinary means of grace don't neglect the ordinary means of grace don't neglect the word prayer and the sacraments these are the means that god has given to us that he's promised that these are means of communion with him 
He just promised that his spirit will bless these things. And, and you might think, you might be a little skeptical and say, well, that sounds awfully ordinary. How is that supposed to wake me out of my spiritual funk? Well, that's the point, is they are ordinary, and yet those are the means the spirit chooses. We need to be willing sometimes to walk by faith in that, to ask the spirit that he will truly minister in your heart, not just be sort of this passively residing in your heart, but actively ministering. Ask the Spirit, will he take the words of Scripture and apply them to you? Press them on your heart. Will he point your eyes to Christ? Look at him again in the Scriptures. Get new glimpses of him through the Word. That's what gives us new fellowship with God. And it's not a real cool idea. It's not a real novel idea. But it's a trustworthy idea. And this is where he goes now in, in verses 5 through 10. He, he continues to talk about the path of fellowship with God. And I use that word path very intentionally because he's talking about walking. This is a path that we walk of fellowship with God, that we walk in the light. We do not walk in the darkness. It's walking together with God in the garden, in the cool of the day, as it were, as we have fellowship with God. And in these verses here, the second chapter, or the second paragraph, rather, this is what he says about the path of fellowship with God. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. You see, if you embrace a mystical conception of fellowship, then the main barrier to that fellowship is just noise, it's distraction, it's circumstance, it's context. I need to get out of this to where it's quieter so I can hear the voice of God. But what the Bible says is the main barrier to communion with God is inside us. It's not external to us. It's, it's our sin that resides in our heart. And the fact that God himself is perfectly holy, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And yet, so he, he says here in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. John is all about testing your experience. You can say you have fellowship with him, but he says... I can look at the way that you are walking and I can, uh, I can analyze what you've just said. I can make a judgment based on that. It says if, you're, if you say you have fellowship but you walk in the darkness, that's a lie. He's all about testing our experience. Our experience is not beyond being tested. See, he pulls no punches in doing this here, does he? But he says in verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That one another, I, I believe when he says one another, he's talking about us and God. That if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship together. That it's possible for us to walk together, to experience fellowship, to experience communion together, and what's necessary for us is that we be walking in the light. So what does that mean? Well, he explains for us that it doesn't mean, walking in the light doesn't mean living a life of sinless perfection. As though he said, God is perfect, you also must be perfect, and then you can have fellowship. He explains what he means in verse 8, right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So that's not the answer. Uh, verse 9, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what it means to walk in the light with the Lord, is that when we sin... We acknowledge our sin, we confess our sin, we ask for his forgiveness of sins, and when we do that, he says God is faithful and God is just and he forgives your sin. And he cleanses you 
from all unrighteousness. It's as though the stain that sin leaves on your heart is completely washed away by Christ when we simply confess. He says that's what it means to walk in the light. It's not perfection. It's transparency. It's honesty. It's this idea of authenticity, but not authenticity with man. It's authenticity with God. That we confess our sins to him. That's what walking in the light means. And that, he says, is the path of fellowship with God. That's the path of experiencing communion with him, is that as we sin, we confess, that we live in an authentic relationship with him. We don't deny sin, we don't sweep sin under the carpet, we don't pretend it doesn't exist, we acknowledge it, we own up to it, and we confess it. Because that's what it means to walk in the light. In other words, walking the path of fellowship with God always begins at the cross. If you want to walk this path, if you want to go down this way that God is going and you want to walk next to Him, the only way is to begin at the cross. Confessing sins, trusting, actively putting your faith again in in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Don't look at that as something that's, I've done that before. Do it again. Every day, look to Christ. Every day, look to the cross. There's this memorable passage in Pilgrim's Progress after Christian has gone by the cross and his burden has fallen off and he goes a little further and it says he sees two men who tumble over the wall to get onto the path. And their names are formalist and hypocrisy. And Pilgrim approaches them. He says, what are you guys doing? You have to start at the beginning of the path. And they say, ah, it seemed easier to start here. In some words like that, anyway. But it's this picture of people who who are trying to go to God, but they want to take a shortcut and go around the cross. They don't want to begin at the cross. They said, that was too far out of the way from the city where we lived. And, and of course, Christian says, "There there is just no other path to the celestial city than the one that begins at the cross. And there's no other path to our fellowship with God to being in his presence then walking in the light as he is in the light. And that means we start every day again at the cross to confess our sins, to trust in him, that he's faithful, that he's just. Our path of fellowship with God must begin with the daily recognition we stand in the presence of God. And on our own, we are not worthy to stand there. We have no right to do that. We're not worthy. But because the love of God sought us out first, because he initiated, he came to us, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins to cleanse us from unrighteousness. If you start there, then you can go further down the path and enjoy the other benefits of communion with Christ. And, and we'll get to those in, in coming weeks. That, uh, the help of the Holy Spirit, the always renewing supply of grace, his help in temptation the faithfulness of his word that leads us, that gives direction to us, that speaks to us, that teaches us. All of these benefits that will be ours as we abide in Christ and his word abides in us, but every day the path begins at the cross. That's both the wonder of of having fellowship with God who is light, and it's the very practical path. The practical steps we take is to begin with confession of sin. It's the only way to begin fellowship with Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that that we will every day draw our hearts closer to Christ. May we learn from your word the beauties and the glories that await us in the promise of fellowship and communion with him. May you draw our hearts 
closer to you, that we abide with great joy and with great love and with, with much trust and faith and peace in our hearts, abiding in Christ. Father, we ask that each one of us will experience this greater and greater, that, that even as we have begun to do it, so we may do so more and more to know the joy of fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask this for the glory of Christ and for the good of our own selves. For in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.